at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Jacqueline Corti, who actually started as a scientist at the Center for Education, Research and Innovation in January this year. So it's, it's so nice to be able to feature her in one of the initial episodes of the year. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University. Welcome Jacqueline, it's very nice to have you with us today. Hi, Syra. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm such a fan of the Curiosity Habit. It's really been incredible to hear about all the stories that have led researchers to their interest and to hear about the different journeys people have taken in their careers. So I'm really delighted to be a part of this. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate your comments. It's really nice to hear that people are following and, and that they find this as, as an opportunity to just showcase their own stories. So speaking of stories, I usually like to start with like the beginning of the whole thing for you, since you were little, you were a child. And I was uh, curious actually about what was the most odd or strange th thing that you were curious about when you were growing up? What was Jacqueline curious about growing up? I think I had a lot of different curiosities growing up. And I think a lot of it drew on my experience as a kid and my family. So I'll tell you a little bit um, about myself. So I grew up in a, a very small town, a population of about 2000 individuals. Uh, so quite small in comparison to some. And um, <laughs> the community that I grew up in was really known for tobacco and pig farming. Um, so small town community. And I grew up with two siblings. Um, and I spent a lot of time in my childhood actually playing sports. As you can imagine, in a small town, there's not much to do. So our parents enrolled us in a bunch of sports growing up. I had the opportunity to play uh, hockey, soccer, basketball, gymnastics. I did track wow. and field and cross country and badminton. And so had a ton of exposure to different sports growing up, both through school and throughout the community. And so I think one of the things I was always really interested in as a kid and, and curious about was kind of athletics, sport and health. And I think just because of my exposure to that and it's something that I was really familiar with and was comfortable with and knew a lot about, I think it just kind of drew my, my interest into, into sport. Yeah. And, and now reflecting on your experience as a mom, because you have Grayson and Grayson, by the way, is Jacqueline's baby well now she showed me a photo is that that baby it's actually grown up since the last year um, how do you see curiosity appearing in Grayson's case and how that makes you reflect about what curiosity can look like that is an amazing question and you're right so I have a son who's 18 months old now and he is growing so incredibly fast and one of the things that I think is just amazing to watch is his sense of curiosity and one in the world and as he grows and he learns to communicate a little bit more you see more and more of it come out and it's just fascinating you know they go through so many small changes over the course of time but 
as they get older, I feel like the changes get faster and he's picking up new skills and traits as we go. And so it's absolutely incredible to watch. He's, you know, at home, I think about the types of things that fascinate him and that he's curious about. And it's mostly about, uh, I would say, connection. He's really interested in our dog, Bo, and how Bo interacts with him. He's really interested in, you know, his parents and what we do. If I'm cooking or cleaning, he wants to be right by my side, being held, helping me, you know, open things and fill the pot with water and put the pasta in, that type of stuff. He's just very curious about all the kind of day-to-day -day aspects of everyday life. And I would say his other curiosity that you can see come through is in nature. You know, he loves being outside. Any and every opportunity we can get to be outside, he just loves it. Even in the wintertime, you know, he goes and grabs his boots and coats and says, outside, and you can tell he just wants to go and play. So there's such an, a sense of adventure and curiosity amongst him, but it's really in the pieces that he's looking for the connection. So the animals, the family, and, and nature. Right. And wait until he starts speaking a little bit more. And it will be otherwise. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. As his language is slowly developing and, you know, he's got a good little repertoire of words that he uses pretty consistently and accurately. And it's amazing to see, you know, when he was younger, he would use sign language uh, yeah. a lot to try to communicate. And now that his language skills are developing, you know, you can pretty much get a sense of what he's trying to tell you just with a few words and signs. So it's pretty neat. <laughs> That's awesome. So... In addition to Grayson, you have another important member of your family that we all know at the center, but many people in the podcast may not know, and it's Bo. Bo is a dog who has become, well, now he has a partner because Lorelai's dog too, but now we have two dogs at the center, but Bo is very social and, I, and everybody likes Bo. And I was wondering what has been kind of unexpected situations or an unexpected thing that Bo had brought to your life uh, since you have him that's a great question and you know Bo has been such a rewarding aspect of my life we we rescued Bo from an agency called uh, second chance animal rescue and we got Bo when he was about six or seven months old for those that have not had the opportunity to meet him he's kind of a, a husky german shepherd possibly lab some interesting <laughs> mix um, but he just has the best personality. And I would say one of the unexpected but incredibly rewarding aspects of having Bo is the opportunity to bring him to work. And the networking leverage that Bo has afforded me has been absolutely incredible. I've met so many people, students, staff, faculty on campus that I never would have met and that's solely because of Bo. People stop to, you know, to ask to pet him, to meet him, and then you end up in conversations. And I've actually developed incredible friendships uh, and, and even work relationships uh -huh. with people that I would have not otherwise had the opportunity to meet if it weren't for Bo. And so he's an absolutely incredible networker. And you're right, everyone knows him. I have people <laughs> come by my office and pop in, not to say hi to me, <laughs> but to <laughs> say hi to Bo and, and to get a pet. And so He's been an absolutely incredible part of my family at home, but 
also an incredible part of the Syrian I think yes, I'm, I'm sometimes guilty of that. I come to your office and go, where's Bo? <laughs> Everyone comes. On days I don't bring Bo, I tell you, there's a lot of disappointment on campus. Right. Maybe you should bring him for conferences. He might be a very good networking buddy. <laughs> I should. I should think about that. The next conference, I think uh, Amy's coming up. We'll see if I can bring Bo. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> now it makes sense to me why you went to... I think it was physical education for your undergrad because of your exposure to sports. But was there anything else that influenced you in that choice? Or, and did you have any other choices for your undergrad growing up? Yeah, so I think you're right. A lot of the decision to pursue physical education in my undergrad came from my exposure to sport as a, as a kid. You know, it was the one thing that I knew. I felt like I was quite athletic and really good at sports. So it just seemed like a natural fit for me to enroll in physical education. But I think the other aspect was the education component of things. I was always fascinated with teaching. I've had such a good relationship with my teachers growing up, you know, through elementary school and particularly in high school, I developed a, a close relationship with a few of my teachers who, you know, were either coaching my sports teams or involved in um, the community in some way, shape, or form. And so seeing them and their career and the opportunities that were available as a, as a teacher really fascinated me. So I thought physical education was the best of both worlds. So I went into university with the intention of becoming a, a high school phys ed teacher coming out of it. Of course, that didn't quite go according yeah, to what happened because you went to public health. So yes. tell me the story about that switch. Yeah, it was quite this way, not a, not a huge shift uh, compared to some, but a, a bit of a shift. And I think what had happened, again, I think so much of what where my interests and passion lie are really relevant and based on your experiences. And so in high school, all I really knew was high school teacher and what right. that looked like and, you know, what a career as a high school teacher could look like. Um, I'm so happy with my decision to pursue physical education. It was a fascinating undergraduate opportunity. You know, the courses were really surreal. You had the opportunity to engage in things like anatomy and biomechanics, but then you also got to do really fun things like dance and gymnastics that were part of the coursework, which was really fascinating. Um, but then I think when I got to university, <laughs> I realized university is so much better than high school. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, there's so much, yes, there's so much more opportunity here, so much more curiosity, so much more to just teaching. Right. I really got interested in, in research throughout my undergrad. I had the uh, opportunity to an, do an undergraduate thesis with a supervisor uh, in the faculty, and that really kind of struck my research uh, interest. And then from there, you know, I decided opposed to doing um, a year of teacher's college after my undergraduate degree, I thought it would be really a great opportunity to consider uh, a graduate degree to, to get a little bit more research and just feel that out and see what it might look like. Mm -hmm. And the connection to public health, was that a particular professor or an experience that you had, like the, 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 the shift in the content as well? Yeah, so I started off in physical education and then I decided when I was pursuing my master's, I wanted to broaden things a bit. Physical education was so much focused on, you know, the physical aspect of health. And when I got to university, I realized that there's so many other conceptualizations of health. And so I pursued a master's in applied health sciences, which kind of broadened my perspective a little bit. 
And then when I got into applied health sciences, it kind of piqued my curiosity and more thinking about population level and public health. Mm -hmm. And so that's what really drew me to the PhD in that program. I think I started so, so specialized in physical education and then really saw that there was so much more to that, thought more about applied health sciences and then realized through that, you know, there's this whole world about population and public health, which is, you know, even more um, diverse. And so decided to really pursue a PhD in that area. It's very interesting to see that you started different from many people. Many people go broad and then try to find a niche and you started with the niche and then you go, oh, actually there's more than that. So how was, like, I know you're coming from a small town. Where, where did the drive to continue into a master's and a PhD came from? Did you have someone in your family who went that route and then you were following those steps or how, how did it come to you to continue to get more education as you move along? It's, it's a great question. And you know what, I was one of the first in my family to attend university. Um, amongst, you know, my family members, a couple since have attended university, but certainly no one had pursued graduate studies. And I think for me, it was along the lines of a career path and where I wanted to go. Um, so as I had mentioned in undergrad, I was really interested in being a physical education teacher. And so the, the pursuit was really teacher's college. But as I got to university and just realized the realm of possibilities that is there and the opportunities for research and to engage in the academic setting, um, I think that's what really drew me uh, to want to be a professor. Um, mm -hmm. I love the opportunity to do research, to continue the aspects of teaching. I just love the academic environment so much. I, I really felt like I belonged and fit in here. And so it was a nice opportunity to use that graduate training to really reach my ultimate career goal. Right. That's, that's very cool to hear that the undergrad was such a positive experience in you that took you to that path. So then you did your PhD at the University of Alberta, and then you came to London. Yeah, now I have to ask that. What brought you to London? Were, were you, did you have plans to stay in Alberta or was just family coming to London? What was the, the, the moving out of Alberta to London? Yeah, so that was a, a big decision for my husband and I. Um, I had spent, you know, almost seven years in Alberta, um, pursuing my PhD and doing some research work afterwards. And um, we were trying to decide whether or not we were to stay in Alberta or perhaps make our way back to Ontario. And I think for us, you know, family is such an important component for both of us and both of our families are from Southern Ontario. One of the great things about coming home and visiting was you know, my husband's family and my family lived about 15 minutes apart. We're from neighboring hometowns. His family was tobacco farmers. And so um, we gave us the nice opportunity when we did have to travel home to travel home together um, and not have to kind of pick and choose between families for a lot of people that lived out in Alberta. You know, their families were situated all across Canada. And so it became a, a really difficult decision to make on when to go home to different uh, families and, and visit. But for us, I think the decision largely was we were thinking of starting and creating our own family. And for us, you know, growing up with siblings, um, growing up with our cousins and our aunts and uncles and everyone close by, it was just an amazing opportunity. And so we had thought, you know, we need to make our way back to Ontario and really um, start our roots there and, and mm -hmm. think about developing our family and, and reconnecting with our extended family. Mm -hmm. And so I was applying for positions. 
Um, and the first position that I actually got in London was in the Faculty of Health Sciences as an assistant professor teaching uh, population health interventions, which was, of course, in their undergraduate program. And then so I had moved to uh, London in September to start teaching that course. And then shortly after, I had also applied for this research associate position at Siri. And so I found out in October uh, that I got that position. And so it, it was a nice opportunity, you know, coming here into London. It was a bit scary just having one part-time contract teaching a single right. course. Um, and then I felt so much better when I received this full-time research associate position at the center. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Nick followed shortly after. And luckily, the company that he had worked for has an international company and has different locations across Canada. And luckily, one of them was in London. Uh, so he had a direct transfer um, between the two companies and we ended up here. Oh, great. Well, I'm glad it worked out. And I know that one of your dreams was to become a scientist, a full-time professor. However, you didn't start there right away. You started as a research associate at, at, at our center, and then you became an education specialist as well before now getting into a scientist position. So it was a, a little bit of a, a time window that you were, you wanted to be there, but you were not. And I was wondering what was the main lessons that this particular job kind of in the transition taught you that you are now carrying with you into this phase of being a scientist? The, the, I mean, the job taught me so many wonderful things and provided me with so many amazing opportunities. Um, and especially incredible opportunities to meet the various scientists and medical education community here um, at the center. And so I, I don't know if I can pinpoint a, a single opportunity or experience that really led to it, but um, particularly as a research associate, um, I think that was my first true exposure to the medical education community. Uh, when I was in my PhD at the University University of Alberta, as most graduate students do, you know, you look for part-time employment and ways to kind of make your way through grad school. Yeah. And so the opportunity had arise to work in the Department of Family Medicine as a research assistant. And the first project that I started looked at young caregivers um, and their experiences in providing care for um, different members of their family. And so young caregivers was kind of the first project I was engaged engaged in and worked on and that led to other projects on you know experiences with international medical graduates and looking at physician well-being and other sorts of things um, but I never really saw that within the realm of medical education so the first time coming to Siri as a research assistant I had the opportunity to work with both uh, Dr. Nabil Sultan and Dr. Mark Goldschmidt uh, and there is where I really saw the connection between the work I was doing previously and what is medical education research. That was really fascinating to learn from both of them about their various programs of research. And then the opportunity arose to uh, take on this role as a research consultant and education specialist for the center. Uh, and that was a really exciting role for me because one of the things that I had really missed um, about my time at the University of Alberta was the opportunity to do uh, some teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, after a couple of years as a research associate um, and a couple of part-time teaching gigs in between, it was really nice to have this focus on the Masters of Health Professions Education program and really become a bit more deeply ingrained uh, in that program and in the culture of the medical education community. Well, at the end of the day, everything got connected and you were able to 
to connect the dots across the different interests and places yeah. that you were. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty fascinating that it worked out that way. Exactly. And now you are embarking on your research program, which is it will be about understanding character and character leadership in medicine, particularly. And one of the things that I think about when you talk to me about character is like, why the topic? Where, where did it come from? What, what experiences from your childhood or from your parents uh, led you to infuse character into your research today? It's a great question. And so I don't know that I've I thought about it in the terms of my experiences growing up, but I can see connections to that now. Um, my, my first exposure to it, again, was as a research associate working with Dr. Nabil Sultan. Mm -hmm. And so um, the research that he was working on was looking at um, different uh, allied health professionals' perceptions of what makes an effective physician leader. Uh, and within this research, he's really the one that introduced me to this uh, notion of character and character-based leadership and really how important it is um, that who we are as an individual and the values that we hold are really espoused um, and enacted in ways that really shape who we are as teammates and as individuals and as leaders. And so um, it was really the work with him that really inspired the pursuit and passion for this work. And, you know, seeing Nabil and in, in his research and just being so passionate and an exemplar to me, um, an exemplary case of character in practice. It was just something that really drew me to it. And now that I think about my experiences, you know, as a kid, I think, you know, a lot of time spent again playing sports, but there's so many aspects of sports in which character and leadership are so incredibly important. You know, aspects of humility and humanity and integrity and collaboration and teamwork. Um, you know, they're all, all such an important aspect of sport. Um, and I think so there's elements of that in there. Um, and I think I had mentioned to you before uh, that my mom was a, a psychiatric nurse. And, and so she spent a lot of time uh, focusing in on, you know, not only our physical health, but also our mental well-being. And I think there's so many components of character that are really deeply connected to who we are as individuals and the values that we hold. And so, um, you know, a lot of our time growing up, we were very much encouraged to talk about and think about these types of things. And so I think, you know, the connection between my childhood to my, my mom's interest and, you know, the lessons that she taught me growing up and uh, the really exposure to it with Nabil is what really drew me in. Yeah, it's so cool to hear your story because we know each other for a long time now yeah. and you don't, we don't get the time to actually explore these things and now everything makes sense. Why character? Why well-being? And my next question was going to be that one. What's the connection with well-being? What, 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 where does your interest come from? And you're saying mostly your mom was the one who infused that in you. What other kind of lessons she taught you um, that you're now carrying with you for your scientist life, but also in your personal life? Because I can see your mom being such a prominent figure in your, in your life. Oh yeah, she she absolutely was. She was an absolutely incredible woman. She had an amazing career, as I had mentioned, as a psychiatric nurse. She had worked in a variety of different contexts, both kind of in a hospital-based setting and towards the, the latter half of her career in kind of community practice um, and was particularly engaged in, um, you know, substance abuse and addictions. And, you know, through her work, I just saw... Um, 
such immense dedication and passion to the people that she cared for. And seeing that level of compassion, that level of empathy and understanding that she had towards her patients, you know, obviously the work that she did was highly confidential, but you could tell that she took that work home with her and she really cared about it and was thinking about the people. Um, and I think that she brought that same level of compassion to her family and friends. And so, you know, my mom growing up was, was truly my best friend. And a lot of people, you know, have trouble talking to their parents about certain things. But if I ever had an issue or a conundrum or, you know, something that needed solved, she would be the first person that I would go to, you know, to talk it out and receive advice. And she always gave the most sound advice you could ever imagine. There was never any judgment. And she always looked at it from the perspective of, you know, making sure that you and others are really happy. And that's mm -hmm. so important. Yeah. And now from that, I can see how she could be kind of the, the face of your character and well-being research, because it's an inspiration to hear how much she influenced you and your thinking. So it's very nice to hear. Thank you for sharing. My pleasure. I would like, now I'd like to switch a little bit to a little more of what I call uh, the small things in life. And, and I want to know, for instance, what is your favorite time of the day, every day? That's such a cool question. I've never been asked that. Um, I think my favorite time of the day is actually the very first thing in the morning. <laughs> I'm, okay. I, would, I would call myself a morning person for sure. Um, I love waking up early in the morning, you know, sometimes before the sun rises seeing the sun come up and just like the opportunity to be so grateful uh, for all that I have and just set such positive intentions throughout the day. Um, I think that's truly my favorite part of the day. It's, you know, after a renewed sleep, it's a really um, renewed focus and a fresh start and an opportunity to really do good in the world. And so first thing in the morning, you know, some people hit the snooze alarm. I jump right out of bed and I'm so excited to start the day. Oh, lucky you. I'm a, I'm an early person, but I don't jump out of bed that fast. No. <laughs> okay. There is also this idea that as we grow up, or as, as you, we, move, we move through different stages in your life, your habits change. What has been a habit that you have to adjust recently when you transition into being a scientist? That is a great question. And I think that this goes hand in hand with having um, a little one. I think the, the biggest shift for me has been uh, more of a focus on work-life balance. I think I've always tried to achieve that to some extent. As many of us know, you know when you're in graduate studies, there's no kind of off the clock time, you know, 100% of your time feels like it should be devoted to that. And I think since leaving graduate studies, you know, and working and teaching in the field, that was still kind of a little bit of the mentality in that, you know, spare time could be productive time. And so make sure you use it well. And so I did find myself, you know, just because I'm so passionate about the work and had the opportunity to do so working, you know, through many evenings and weekends, on things. I think the biggest thing that has shifted um, in my life and in my career is, is the position and of course um, my son. And so I think one of the things that I'm working on now, which Grayson kind of forces me to do, is to really have more of that work-life balance. I find when I'm at work, I try to set really good intentions and put as much focus and energy into the work as I can while I'm here. So that when I leave at the end of the day, I feel that I've really done, you know, the best that I can do for the day. 
and um, tried to be as productive as I could be and that I'm able to really shut that off and just spend the evening with my family and enjoy that time. And that really kind of refreshes and revitalizes me for the next day. Good job on that. It's so hard Thanks. to do it. But it's yeah, very to challenging to do. Absolutely. It takes yeah. a lot of practice and I'm still learning as I go, but I do think that's one of the things that I'm learning to do a little bit better these days. It's good to have Grayson around because they make sure they make you accountable. For that's, sure. that's true. There's no getting work done when he's around. That's that's for sure. So, yes, he's a very good reminder just to shut that off and put, you know, 100 percent of my focus and attention on him for some time. Nice. Now, you said that you are one of the first few people in your family going through university and doing graduate studies. I was the same, even though I have a large family. And I found myself having a hard time and sometimes funny experiences trying to explain my family, my research. What about you? Did you have any stories of trying to explain what you do? Because what I always get like, why are you not working? You're always studying. You're not earning money. <laughs> what funny stories have you encountered about the work you do with your family? Yeah, I would say, you know, with my family in particular, um, my, my close family, I think, um, you know, I have my siblings right now, my brother and my sister. My brother is an investment banker and my sister is a, an esthetician. And um, we both have, well, we all have kind of wildly different careers from one another. And so right. I would say, you know, in terms of what I do and understanding it and how I spend my day, I don't think they have a really good conceptualization of that. But nor do I. I have no idea what the day-to-day -day ins and outs of an investment banker are. I imagine it is quite stressful and incredibly challenging. But one of the things that we do uh, have in common that I think, you know, largely came from my mom was this focus on passion. So opposed to, you know, focusing on what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, are you enjoying what you do? Do you right. like it? You know, yeah. what are like the high points of of your job and what do you enjoy most and so that tends to be the emphasis and focus of our conversation so a lot of the times as I'm chatting with them about my work they don't really care about the particular research per se but they might be really interested in you know what's a great thing that happened at work today or you know what are some of the high points or things that you're really passionate about so it's easy to explain the passion piece it's not as always easy to explain the research but certainly we, we really support one another which is amazing. Oh, that's good. What are you looking for for 2022 now with your new position and Grayson and everything that you have on your plate? Yeah, lots on my plate. You know, it's a bit intimidating in some regards, but also, you know, an amazing opportunity to think about what's next. I'm, I'm really just at the, I would say, you know, the start of my career, you know, starting this role, I just began in January, I would say I've done a lot of work to kind of build up to this stage. But now having the opportunity to really pursue my own independent program of research. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm really seeking out this first year is mentorship. And I, you know, I've had lots of really great opportunities to connect with a lot of different people in the med ed community, yourself included, to really get some guidance and mentorship on you know, what I should be focusing in on in the first year and really how to make the most productive use of my time. And so I feel like there's so much you can be doing and, you know, you get yeah. so excited about all the potentials that are there. And so I think the intention for my first year was really to try to hone in on the things that I'm really passionate about and to really try to set some priorities to make sure I'm really successful in the role moving forward. 
Well, it's good that you mentioned this here because now I hope listeners around uh, whenever see Jacqueline and see your face, maybe they can offer a conversation. And that's how, the, how it works in this community. It's all about working and meeting people. So I hope people will, will come to you and you will be able to come to them as well. Absolutely. I think that's one of the amazing things about the MedEd community that I don't know that it exists in all other communities. But since I've entered it, there's just, you know, such wonderful networking opportunities. And I think because it's a smaller community, you know, in comparison to some, we look out for one another. And so, you know, since starting, I've just realized, you know, that these people the whole point is really pushing this medical education community forward and that celebrating the successes of others and introducing people to one another and working on collaborations. And so certainly, you know, within this field in particular, I really welcome any conversations from anyone as a result of this podcast or otherwise. I, I love the opportunity to connect and get to know people. Nice. And hopefully now with things reopening, we will be in person. That will be so good to have so my final question which is usually kind of um a little different question i want to know if you had a month to pursue a different job or a different career what would you choose it's a fascinating question and listening to the podcast i've heard you ask this a couple of times so it's one of the things i've tried to give some thought to um i think for myself i would be really fascinated to like pursue and learn a little bit more about interior design really it's, yeah it's something Where does I it come like, from? <laughs> well I love um I love some of the tv shows like fixer upper for example okay um, so to provide some context my husband and I bought our first home a couple of years ago and we bought a very old uh, 140 year plus old farmhouse um, needless to say, it needs a, a little bit of work. And so one of my kind of hobbies or pastimes and things that I'm slowly working on in between um, is really fixing up this home and trying to restore it to what its former glory once was. And so, you know, there's been a lot of changes since 140 years is quite a long time. And I'm learning lots as I go, in particular, that things are not easy. And there's a lot of roadblocks and bumps along the way. But it's really fascinating thing to, to start to think about. And I think, you know, there's such an opportunity to bring beauty to old things in life and finding an old home and, and maintaining its character and kind of rebuilding it is exciting. How are you learning to do that? It, I think your husband is an engineer, right? But He's in urban not. planning and none of us particularly have the full skill set to do this independently. Okay. And so, you know, a lot of what we've learned and what we're inspired to do comes from these TV shows that we watch. Um, <laughs> and so we get to a certain point uh, within our, our demolition or, or building things up where we definitely need some external help. Um, and so we've brought that in many a times, but um, we certainly enjoy trying to do things on our own demoing things learning as we go wow. and then yeah when we get to a point where we're like yep this is beyond our skill set that's when we bring someone in and get some help so first of all I didn't know you were a destroyer like your personality doesn't match someone who will destroy things and second what has been the the worst <laughs> damage that you have made in your efforts to make a renovation in the house oh gosh so <laughs> Many. <laughs> yeah, many, many things have gone wrong. Um, that's for sure. Uh, we're learning, like I said, learning as we go. I think one of the hardest things is um, uh, right now, we currently have demoed our what was a, a dining room. 
um, and taken down kind of the ceilings and are attempting to kind of uh, expose some beautiful wood beams that exist and kind of build that back up. Um, however, the ceilings are, are plaster. Um, and if you've ever taken down plaster, uh, you know, it's a drywall, you can take it, pull it down, and then it's done. Plaster is a, a very messy beast and extremely heavy, and there's lots of fun little hidden things um, in 140-year-old homes. And so uh, we've certainly made a lot of mess along the way and figured out ways to do that a bit more strategically as we go. Um, and we're learning, you know, that it's, it's certainly not an easy thing um, to rebuild an old home because something as simple as um, putting up trim uh, in a regular home would be quite easy. In a 140-year-old home, none of the walls are particularly level or even, and so it's very right. challenging even to put a, a strip of trim up on a ceiling uh, becomes a very difficult and challenging task, but it's fun. Wow, your home is kind of your lab, your yeah. experiment. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. It's definitely an experimental lab for sure. Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing it one day with all the renovations. Thank you, Jacqueline. It has been a really enjoyable conversation. I appreciate you taking the time and welcome. Well, I shouldn't say welcome to the medic community, but welcome to your role as a scientist. Myself, looking forward to working with you in this new position. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's an absolute pleasure. Okay, and everybody, thank you for listening today and we'll tune in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.